presents all of the social, emotional, and cognitive challenges that change, you know, for decades that it presents these new challenges to us that we have to continually adapt to and that it's possible that that has this kind of neuroprotective effect, which... This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Hello, dear friend. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Hovington, and I am your host. I am a mom of three kids, and I have a PhD in neuroscience. And my goal here at Curious Neuron is to bring you the science that will make a big impact on your child's development. Um, As you know, I am making changes to the podcast, and in just a few weeks, I will be relaunching it and and, and being very specific to emotional learning in kids. And that's helping us with our emotional learning and mental health and emotional intelligence and all of that. So we'll be covering the science as always, but very specifically to our emotional health and our child's emotional health. So bear with me as I make these changes and I keep reminding you because that's coming up around the corner and I hope it means you will continue to subscribe to the Curious Neuron podcast and that you will um, benefit from this shift. And the reason why I'm doing this actually is because a lot of the information that's coming into me um, is around that, our emotional health and our child's. And I want to help you protect your child's emotional health. The changes are being made right now on the website, on social media, and the podcast is last. I'm finishing off this season very early. Um, We'll be finishing off the season um, season four of the Curious Neuron podcast in April, and we'll be launching the new season um, right away. So I'm excited for those changes, and I hope that you are too. Before we move on to today's episode, I want to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. It means everything to me. Um, actually, without them, this podcast would not be happening. So I'm very grateful for their help. This podcast would also not be happening without you, the listener. So make sure you are subscribing and leaving a rating and reviewing the podcast. That allows me to know and our supporters that you are enjoying the podcast and you want some more. Um, And every little review makes a difference. So please take a moment to do that as well. And if you do, leave me uh, or send me an email at info at kirstenron.com. I will send you a free PDF called Meltdown Mountain, which will help you um, have a visual. If you have a child who's struggling with their emotions, here is a visual that you can print and put up on the wall. It helped my three kids with their emotions, and I'm sharing it with you now. Um, You can also visit CuriousNeuron.com. We have lots of blog posts, and there's the Curious Neuron Academy that has more PDFs, if that one is helpful to you, and also some webinars that can help you understand the link between your child's behavior and emotions. Uh, another PD, another webinar can help you understand how your own childhood impacted your um, you, the way you're parenting right now. So there's a lot that you can learn from Kirsten Neuron Academy. And last but not least, I am the co-founder of Wondergrade as well. And Wondergrade is an app that helps children um, learn how to cope with emotions. We've got this amazing character called Ollie who helps your kids. And the app is not just for your kids. There is a center for parents. So if you want to learn more about emotions specifically, 
specifically, and you have a child between the ages of three and eight, click on the link in the show notes and download the app and give it a try for two weeks for free. Today's topic is about the parental brain. It's something that I've covered a few times in different ways, and I want to keep covering it because, and even even with the new um, outlook on the podcast and Curious Neuron, I want to keep covering this because mental health is huge when it comes to the parental brain, especially in the postpartum phase. And, and even during pregnancy, we need to have this discussion a lot more because first, in my opinion, we need to change prenatal classes and, and there needs to be an, a huge component around mental health because if we are not well, we will struggle to take care of our kids um, and it's not your fault. I think we need to find ways to support parents um, because these changes happen. That's what happens to the brain sometimes. It just becomes not mentally well and, and parents need support. Um, so that's one reason why I keep covering the parental brain, especially in the postpartum phase. Um, I want to keep talking about the parental brain, both moms and dads, because we don't realize that dads can also have postpartum depression. And when a mom experiences postpartum depression, there are higher chances of the dad experiencing postpartum depression or anxiety for both. Um, and then I think that we need some policy changes um, around how we support parents, especially in the United States. You know, I'm Canadian, um, so I'm not doing this to point fingers. I'm doing this because I've been having conversations with researchers, with clinicians, all seeing the impact of having such a short um, parental leave and maternity leave, we if we want to make an impact or have an impact on our child's emotional health, we need to start having the conversation of how we're protecting and supporting parents in the early stages. So I'm going to keep having this conversation, and 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 that's my reasons. Those are my reasons why. Today, I have two guests. Um, Chelsea Conboy is a journalist specializing in um, personal and public health. She was a part of the Boston Globe's Pulitzer Prize winning team for the coverage on the Boston Marathon bombing, and more recently has worked as a magazine writer and uh, with bylines at Mother Jones, Politico, The Week, The Boston Globe Magazine, and others. She lives in Maine with her husband and their two young sons, and as she puts it, her own changing maternal brain, because our brains change very often and different phases will uh, lead to certain changes. So she is also the author of Mother Brain, and I encourage you to have a look. All the links are in the show notes. I also invited somebody to come back to the Curious Neuron podcast. She has become a dear friend now. Dr. Jody Polowski is back on the Curious Neuron podcast. She is a behavioral neuroscientist, psychotherapist, and author. Her research is affiliated with l'Institut de Recherche en Santé, Environnement et Travail, um, a research unit of the Inserim Institute at the University of Rennes in France. For over 15 years, Jody has studied the neuroscience of motherhood and the effects of perinatal mental illness and antidepressant medications on the mother and developing offspring. She regularly speaks nationally and internationally uh, about her research findings, as well as the findings, uh, the fascinating effects of parenting, of parenting on the brain. In 2020, Dr. Polovsky started a podcast called Mommy Brain Revisited, uh, which focuses on bringing current research on the perinatal brain to the generic to the general public 
She also blogs um, about the neuroscience of parenting and perinatal mental health at Inspire the Mind and is the author of Mommy Brain um, from La Russe, uh, written in French, but the English version is coming soon. Dr. Pulowski has appeared in the New York Times, Scientific American, CNN, the Boston Globe, to name a few. She has been a guest um, to talk about maternal brain on BBC Radio Women's Hour and Frank Inter. She is a postpartum support international coordinator for France and a member of the Canadian Perimental, a Perinatal Mental Health Collaborative. She is an active She is active in publishing, counseling, mentoring, and advocating for improvements to perinatal mental health care and research on the, peri the parental brain. Now you know why I brought her back. <laughs> I'm excited to share this interview with you. So please enjoy my conversation with Chelsea and Jody. See you on the other side. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I am your host. Today, we are saying welcome back to Jody and welcome to Chelsea. We're going to talk about the parental brain again, which we did with Jody uh, a little while back and maternal brain. And we're going to come back to all of this while discussing Chelsea's new book. Um, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. I love this conversation because I just think we need to have this a lot more in our society. Mother Brain, um, Chelsea, is your new book. And I wanted to have the discussion about the postpartum period more specifically um, because it is something that there's a lot of research on, but also a place that we need a lot more research on. Um, how about we begin our conversation with just understanding changes that happen to the parental brain in the postpartum period? For me, the big message in the science is that this is a real period of of transition, that it's really like a developmental stage of life. And there's a lot to learn about the timeline on which this these changes unfold. But what we know is that the parental brain is is shaped by by hormones and and by experience. And um, these changes, you know, we talk a lot about hormones during pregnancy and how, um, you know, major changes in estrogen and progesterone and, and oxytocin and other things really serve to preserve the pregnancy and to make childbirth and lactation possible. And we talk a lot less about what they mean for the brain, but the the science, you know, is indicating that it, those same hormones are sort of priming the brain to be ready to receive our babies who are these really incredibly powerful stimuli for the brain. I, I love that you just said that it's preparing us to receive our baby because I think that we, I, I know we wanted, I wanted to chat about this with both of you, but like the term mommy brain, I often, or pregnancy brain too. Like I've often had this conversation with expecting moms who just feel like anything that's going wrong when you, whenever you forget or you're not being mindful of something in that moment, that it's that negative connotation around like mommy brain. But what you're saying is that it's, it's there for the needs of our child. Absolutely. And some of the most powerful conversations I've had with anyone about this topic are with Jody, who, who like, I just so value her knowledge in my own process of, of writing this book. Like, and we're, you know, she was one of the first researchers I really talked in depth about the science. She would say things like, um, uh, that we have to like be patient with ourselves and that it's a process. And, 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 you know, those things sort of feel like, In other contexts, I might have thought that they were like just catchphrases, but for her, she really has like the knowledge to back that up. And it felt really true. No, oh, thanks, Chelsea. But I, I also want to add specifically <laughs> with the memory component that, I mean, often 
One thing we do know is, is if women are brought into the lab to participate, moms in the studies, often they do quite well on memory tests. So there's something about the home environment, which we haven't quite sorted out yet in our research. You know, the cognitive load we talk about that can be playing a role in how we feel about how our brain is functioning. So I think, I I mean, as amazing as the parental and the maternal brain is, there is a shift or a reorganization to probably to, to give up some capacities a little bit or diminish them. So perhaps that's where we're feeling this memory loss while we're learning all these amazing things, taking care of our child. So, so there is, I mean, this is an idea we still need to, I think, do more research on, but this reorganization or the shift. And I think when we talk about the memory, which we often talk of in terms of mummy brain, which we'll talk about how we can rebrand that. But mm-hmm. I think that there is something there that needs to be sorted out, but I we also we need to remember, and I think this is, you know, Chelsea's book, right, where we need to re- realize how amazing our brains are during this time because mm-hmm. we're essentially keeping a human alive. I love these studies that have come out in the last couple of years um, looking at older adults and comparing parents and non-parents. And these are people in their 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond. And um, when researchers look at the brains of parents, they they find that they are what, what the researchers themselves call younger looking. And the idea, the thinking is that, the, you know, parenthood presents all of the social, emotional and cognitive challenges that change, you know, for decades that it's presents these new challenges to us that we have to continually adapt to and that it's possible that that has this kind of neuroprotective effect, which has also been validated in the, in the rodent research too. Um, so I just, I love those studies because they provide such a powerful counterpoint and Jody's right. You know, there's like nuances that are yet to be explored there, what the costs are, but the idea that there could be these long-term benefits is really exciting. I love that part because I know that there are grandparents that listen to this podcast and feel that we need to talk about grandparents a lot more and their role in caregiving. Um, but basically, I know from my own experience, my my in-laws and my mom has told they have, they've told me like you kind of get rejuvenated with these grandkids that come into your life, and all of a sudden you have this extra energy energy that I don't have as a parent sometimes when they're like running around and playing and playing pretend with the kids, and I'm like I'm so tired. <laughs> but they just feel that they've they've they ha- it's like the second life for them to just like run around and be a parent in a different way that they could still sleep at night but but they can they get to play with them yeah all day. it's like they get to put to put to good use all of that work that they're <laughs> that they're that turmoil that their brain went through when they were a parent themselves and now they can like really use those skills and also not have the sleep deprivation that we have yes exactly um i i yeah Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I, there was a study that I had looked at a couple of years ago that was really, um, that really marked me because it talked about how the mother's brain, like you said, we're going, it was going through specific changes, but that a father's brain also experienced similar changes if they ex- had the same amount of time or a similar amount of time spent with their child. And that really marked me and as well as the audience here at Kirsten Ron because it means that we need to rethink what we're doing in the postpartum phase, right? We're, we often hear about um, like the mom spending time and then dads having less, you know, parental leave and less time with their child. Some struggle to want to do it, but others want to, but they don't get that opportunity. So what should we be seeing in terms of changes given this sort of research? 
Oh, so much. And, you know, I'm here in the United States where we don't have paid leave for anyone, let alone for for fathers, at least that not federally mandated. And I love the research in fathers and other parents that points to this idea that, you know, that experience really matters, that it is, it is time. Mm -hmm. It is, it is hormones and exposure, but those are true for all parents who like are engaged with their children. And fathers also experience, you know, possible shifts in testosterone and, and changes in their prolactin system and, and spikes in oxytocin as they interact with their children. And, and then, you know, if they spend time in direct care with their babies, that baby is also a powerful stimuli for their brains too. And I think these two messages of, you know, that not only have we sort of like underestimated this time of life for mothers as this profound stage of development, but we've also like really underestimated whose biology can make them into really good caregivers. And that's anyone who who's really engaged in it. And so if we take those two things to be true, there's a lot that needs to change, like social policies, leave options for leave, um, incentives for leave for fathers and other parents. I also think we can talk more about like clinical care and what sorts of supports needs to need to be in place, especially, you know, here in the United States, there's, it's a wasteland. We have the one six week appointment. Um, and I know there's work to be done in, in other countries too, on that front. And then I also think really important piece of this is just the conversation that we have with one another about what it means to become a parent and the the struggles and challenges along the way and around fatherhood in particular, just like the level of engagement and the possibilities for them to be changed and for other parents to be changed through the time they spend with their children. I remember about a year ago, I had posted um, on Instagram asking parents to talk about their postpartum period and like what parental leave looked looked like in their country mm-hmm. and it th- it was interesting because there were like 120 people that took mm-hmm. the time to fill in this this google form to say that it's not mm-hmm. enough most yeah. countries was it was not enough and a lot of the people that like the, there were moms and dads that mm-hmm. spoke about this but the moms spoke about their mental health and having to go back to work so early and not being ready even if physically you've been told by a doctor you're good <laughs> for whatever it is that you're they decide that you're okay for um mentally there's there's a such a shift in your life and, and in hormones and just balancing all this. And a lot of moms said that retrospectively, they feel like they were going through postpartum anxiety mm-hmm. or depression and never even took the moment to realize mm-hmm. it. So I wonder if there's any, are there countries that are doing this the right <laughs> the right way? Or Because I think about Canada as well. We have a longer, obviously we have more months to, to, to take off after we have a child, but the, the care still isn't there. We get our six-week appointment to be told we're physically fine, but what's missing, right, in the system and who's doing it right? Yeah, I mean, I'm in France, right? So we have childcare uh, quite mm-hmm. subsidized and eas- and available, which is quite lovely. But in terms of the p- postpartum care, I think that more could be done. But there are countries, of course, where they have individuals come every day, like the Netherlands, for example, or you have uh, options to work less time, breastfeed, take breaks for breastfeeding your child because their daycare will be close and what have you. So there's, I think we still lack comparison between these different systems. But one thing besides this is there still is a narrative that it's mom's job to take care of babies. And I think that's where the switch has to be is, Mm -hmm. is changing this narrative around whose role it is to care for baby. And, and this is the, this is the pressure point, I think for many individuals, regardless of how much 
uh, support they might have is this feeling of, I should be doing this. I'm failing, you know, and the feelings of guilt. uh, It's terrible. I mean, I think this perfect mother myth is really, really pervasive. And we see it here. It exists. It exists. I think it's in many Western countries in particular. Yeah. For many reasons, but that needs to change. Yeah, I agree with Jody entirely. And I would just add that it's like this idea that it's the mother's job and that she has everything she needs to do it already, right? Like it's innate and automatic in her. And so she's good rather than seeing that like new parents need massive amounts of support, systemic support, individual support, mental health and physical health. And and that those things not only benefit the parent, but really benefit society and our economy and, and, and the health of our families. This is why I love talking about the parental brain, because now we're seeing really the proof, right? I mean, we've known this as researchers for years, that it, there's no instinct, but there's a priming for sure in the birthing parent. But there's lots of species where the, another parent also is involved. They don't give birth and they can parent just as well. So we know that it's a learning process. And so if we can continue to prove or discuss the science around this, I think that can alleviate a lot of the pressure of this perfect mother myth and hopefully reshape our narrative around what it is to be a mother, but also a parent in general. That community aspect to me is really important because you think of that phrase like it takes a village, right? And I was just listening to um, a talk this week by um, Dr. Bruce Perry, who talks about early adverse um, experiences and how that impacts the child. But he was talking about connectedness Mm -hmm. and how we need that to protect the brain. And I was thinking about how it used to be. And I I think of like the small villages, my my husband's Italian and in Italy, they would talk about you would give birth and then like everybody would come together in the village and really help you and, and feed you and and help take care of you so the mom could sleep and help take care of you know like there was a there was a really big difference and I'm assuming that would help that postpartum period definitely I think definitely I mean not to diminish of course the individuals there's many individuals that struggle even though they have lots of support and so you know often there's people are like why am I feeling like this because I have everything I need and and there's lots of different components Mm -hmm. and risk factors for developing a mental illness around the perinatal period but definitely there's something to be said of course if you have individuals who are there other parents or what have you who can help you protect your sleep you know get food in you get some outdoor time these things are always beneficial they might not protect you completely from having depression or anxiety in a severe way but they can help a bit for sure so mm. but yeah we've moved beyond this so much that i think we are siloing like motherhood and this is a huge problem so yeah the community building a community it could be virtual a little bit virtual i mean having mm. people in like real life is yeah. super, but of course there's virtual components that, that can be beneficial too. And, and yeah, sharing also, I think sharing our stories, often we don't talk about the messiness of birth, postpartum, motherhood. Mm-hmm. Dads don't talk about seeing the baby's heads all squishy squish coming out. Like these things yeah. that can be really terrifying yeah. moments when, Yeah, when many of us have gone through all sorts of messy things, but we don't talk about it. So I think sharing our stories is really important as well. Yeah, I think a lot about like my experience with sort of that hypervigilance turning into anxiety and in the early postpartum period. And I get asked often about like cross cross cultural studies and differences of uh, cross cultures and communities. And we really don't have enough research um, investigating that now. But I, um, 
I, I mean, we have almost none really. It's very, very little. Hmm. I was relatively isolated in just like the kind of typical uh, way of, I had some family support around me, but I had like never seen someone go through this postpartum transition up close and, and really like understood what happens and, and their psychology, you know, and, and I do think about, um, all of the neural changes that happened in me that might have led to those feelings of really overwhelming worry. If I had been someone who had had sort of a more intergenerational upbringing or watched sisters or cousins go through that and helped to support them and watched other women supporting them, would I have had those same neural changes, but had them experience them differently? Like, would they have mm. not felt so alarming? Would I have had like the knowledge to know this is part of the process and you come out of it on the other side with these new sort of skills? And so I think that all of that is about communal learning and how much yeah. we've lost um, potentially in that. And I've uh, I think we need to think seriously about how to build it back into the system. How do we, I guess, as a society, start building that into the system, right? So we're talking about, um, we, we started this conversation by talking about some of the positive changes that happen that help us, you know, nurture our child and take care of them. But then, like we just, like we're talking about now, sometimes there are shifts that lead to these difficulties and these challenges for us to to nurture our child. We know that caregiver has mental health issues at the beginning. This might impact the attachment from, from what I understand, right? And a parent might not want to experience this and might fear this and avoid some of the signs and symptoms and, and, and just not understand them. A lot of the moms I speak to think retrospectively and say, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I had that. Um, and then some dads don't even realize they, they had that because nobody ever told them that they can have these hormonal changes or these mental health issues as well. So what do we, where do we begin this conversation? One point that I make in the book is that I, I actually um, think that psychological distress is really an inherent part of this transition mm -hmm. to parenthood. Like I don't actually know anyone who didn't experience any of it from like, whether it was in fertility or, or, uh, you know, fertility challenges or pregnancy or a traumatic childbirth or postpartum, you know, disorders or, or going back to work and dealing with all of the anxiety that's involved with that. And, and so I think, um, if we start to sort of see it that way and like prepare people for it with that in mind, rather than this sort of like rosy Hallmark card picture of new parenthood, um, there's a lot that I think we could do. And none of it's really super clear cut. It's about like shifting our systems and our culture. But a couple of things I've been thinking about is um, one, we don't do a good job of screening people for risk factors for postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. We, we screen for when they're in crisis already. Um, but there's no like universal screening tools for the risk factors. And here in the United States, there's been some movement towards getting psychotherapy for people at risk for postpartum mood and anxiety disorders covered, um, by insurance, but there's been no implementation of that program. Um, and, uh, I think that's one thing we could start the conversation much earlier. My husband went to this program called Boot Camp for New Dads. He really didn't have like a, a paternal model. And so he did this program that is, is nationally licensed here in the United States. And it's, it's a program that brings in um, expectant fathers with 
brand new fathers. Two fathers come with their babies and then there's a facilitator. And it's like this time to like see the father interacting with the baby, like recognize that he can do it, ask any questions. There's like a program of things that they cover, including mental health and childbirth and um, maternal gatekeeping and, and other things. But they also just like get this time to like talk and ask anything that they might want to ask. And I was thinking the other day about how like there actually isn't a correlation for mothers. And like, there's not a similar Mm -hmm. program here for mothers. There's a lot of programs that are like, you know, um, pregnancy classes and um, childbirth classes and uh, infant safety classes, but not this sort of like wide open um, space to just like come and ask like, especially to come and ask a brand new parent, like, how has it been for you? That's like sort of open, but also facilitated. Like, I don't know of many programs like that. And I think that could go a long way. Yeah, I I love that you brought that up. I just also wanted to add, I mean, yes. this is also speaking about experience, right? Like, so maybe if you, you know, mm-hmm. had grown up with siblings who were 10 years younger, you had some experience. If you, if we encouraged men, males to participate or play with dolls, maybe this would make a difference, right? But this is all about yeah. experience with mm-hmm. baby. They're learning, learning, learning. And I think this is really important. I also think like what Chelsea said, there's, there's a huge emotional change with parenting, which is normal and natural. So it's not all happy times. But of course, you know, if you're feeling like you're unhappy more days than you're happy, then you need to to speak to someone or reach out for some support just to check in to see what's going on. Because I, I think it's really valuable to know that many, many people struggle with a mental illness during this time. It's pretty normal. And there's lots of treatments and options and support available to, to help feel better. And I mean, I always say postpartum support international is a go-to. There's so yes. much information there for moms, dads, all parents. And so that's something to check in. If you, you're curious about where you're at on the mental health scale, then have a look at their website for resources and contact information. We're going to add the links to what Chelsea said that that group I think would be important to have on the show notes as well as what you just mentioned, um, Jody, because I think those two links are really valuable yeah. for parents. But it's so true that we need to start before. And I was thinking of even my own experience here, we would connect with a clinic and have these like prenatal classes where you learned how to hold your baby and you learned how to nurse and you learned how to feed your baby, whatever path you took but it was those sort of things that we learned versus how to work on ourselves or understanding our mental health or understanding how perhaps our childhood is going to impact how we look at parenting and I find that we need a lot more of that Um, because for me everything was kind of smooth until there were emotions involved and then I realized like my past kind of influenced how I dealt with emotions it never impacted me really as an adult I mean in a relationship only looking back I was like oh yeah I saw (laughs) the signs were there in terms of knowing how to regulate my emotions but then everything came out with my my children um so there's so much that we do need to learn with regards to that definitely um i'm i'm thinking now like a parent who's listening and and they might be wondering we haven't really mentioned like what signs and symptoms are and also something that i often hear about jody you mentioned the sadness which i i totally agree with but i think also we don't hear about the anxiety as often only like retrospectively or anger some moms talk about rage um is there research around the rage part um is the first part of my question and also what are things that we should be looking for within our environment and the way that we're acting or responding you know in after having her baby in that postpartum phase? 
I mean, I'm going to jump in on the rage point because we don't actually have, in Mm. terms of brain and rage, postpartum, we don't have Mm. anything that I know of. It's really important to talk about because it's definitely part of, you know, usually in depression kind of suite Mm. of symptoms. And it's, but it's very Mm. common to feel this rage periodically, but the, you know, there's feelings of rage. I've talked to moms that are just like from nowhere, they come out. Um, and that's, it's significant. I think sometimes it's it's actually, I mean, I've had conversations about this with, uh, people who really struggled with it, but it's really a normal response to what they're going on in their life, in, in their lives, right. The impossibility of trying to be a perfect mom, the lack of support. I mean, Mm you have every right to be furious about this for sure. I mean, but then we need to figure out how do we, we direct that anger in a proper way. How do we change our environment? How do we let, you know, those feelings go modify things so we feel better. But I think there's a very, very, very valid reason we're feeling these emotions, um, all of them, Mm -hmm. the anxiety and depression included, but we just have to sort out, how then to manage them, of course. But I think for me, this is maybe my opinion. The rage comes up in response to society. Like, how is it possible that you yep. I'm supposed to be happy all the time and do all this mm-hmm. stuff and everyone's loving it, parenting, mm-hmm. and I'm not? Like, this is a, you know, mm-hmm. I think this is a reasonable response. It's overwhelming. So, yeah. Yeah. And even in those moments, I, I and I, that's why I wanted to bring it up because a lot of moms will say like, I, I, it comes out of nowhere. And that's the sort of phrase that you hear very often. And I get it. I've experienced it myself too. And it's just, I think the overwhelm of perhaps your day or your month and, and it just comes out in the weirdest moments. Like something's missing in the fridge and you slime it and you're, you're done. Or like your child says something or your baby cries and you go from like nurturing to just really angry and and you don't we don't understand it but i've looked up some research so many times and you're right there's nothing out there um and it's it's i think that's why sometimes moms don't feel like that's validated like is this normal and and it goes back to chelsea's point that sometimes you just need to speak to somebody else who's experienced this and say yeah i had that and it passed or i did this to help myself oh i just wanted on that point of rage if you want a really great book about someone's experience with postnatal depression it's after the storm by emma jane unsworth she writes about it and one of her main symptoms was rage and i think that book i absolutely loved the book i've listened to it twice and i've talked to emma about it um but it's really important it's a really important message because you you know she's sharing what she went through she overcame it and it validates a lot of people's experience if they you know look at it so you feel like more normalized yeah but her experience I mean the book's great it's really really a wonderful eye-opening book so yeah I second that. And also I would just go back to the point of like how much more research we need. And we we really don't have a lot on um, maternal mental health or cognitive function beyond like the initial mm-hmm. postpartum period. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, um, these are questions that kind of desperately need to be answered, especially if you, you know, you have toddlers or young children and, and you, you know, it's a really like intense sensory experience of just like intense, constant, ceaseless demands. And you live within <laughs> a system that has allowed you to kind of live and burn out for, for all of those mm-hmm. first years of your life. Like it makes sense that you would be overwhelmed by, by those demands sometimes and, or often. Um, 
And I think understanding more of that mental health picture in in sort of like the early childhood years for mothers could be very, very important in and um, perhaps moving some of the, the the needle on social policies too. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to bring up with regards to anxiety, because we got on the rage topic, but talk about anxiety. And a lot of times, I think one thing that we need to talk more about is the obsessive thoughts, which aren't technically defined as anxiety disorder anymore. They're OCD. Ignore that. Before I had kids, a friend of mine told me she had a a two-year-old and she's like, you will have a thousand thoughts a day of how your kid will mm. get hurt or die or something you'll do to it or whatever. Yes. A thousand. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. like this is crazy. But I filed that away. Yeah. And that was really important because I don't think we talk about all these thoughts that fly through our brains. Mm-hmm. And then for some of us, we grab onto them and then we, we end up obsessing over them. I'm going to throw baby mm-hmm. down the stairs. I'm going to whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're horrible, horrible, horrible thoughts. They're super yeah. normal. Yeah. Over 90% of parents have them. It's it's really, really, really normal to have these horrific thoughts. The point is, you know, if you start to have them, you need to find a perinatal health trained practitioner to talk about them. They're, mm-hmm. It's terrifying to talk about, but it's something you need to talk about because the trick with those thoughts are if you don't talk about them, they'll just keep playing their little record. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge yeah. one, it's super normal to have all sorts of crazy thoughts Two, You will never in these cases hurt your baby. It's really not going to happen and just seek out some support because it's, it, you can recover from this and they can stop. So I think that that's really important. Just talking about it helps. I just posted a podcast episode. It felt weird talking about it for the first time, but during, after I gave birth to my first child during that phase, I was obsessed with thinking about the fact that I'm going to die one day. That was my obsession. Obviously with her as well, I was afraid that anybody held her wrong or is she breathing and watching over her at night. But for me, it was just this realization or this fear around like when I was driving and something had happened to me, am I going to never see her again? What's going to, that kind of, and it became truly obsessive um, and was hard to get out of, but I did eventually. And speaking to people about it that were close to me or even just crying about it with somebody that I felt safe with was very helpful in that phase. So I'm really happy that yeah. you brought it's that up. It's the thing that really made me fall in love with this research the first time, because mm-hmm. I, that was very much my experience as well, worrying about my son's safety and then, and then feeling like all of those worries were somehow a sign that I was like failing him and that I, they had like mm. pushed out that like warmth and certainty that I kind of thought I should be feeling in that time and learning in particular about the the science of maternal anxiety and the, and the maternal brain more generally. And this idea that like our, our brains are really working to, to drive our attention towards our children, to motivate us, to take care of them, to focus on them, to be vigilant about them and, and to like attach meaning to them and all of their Mm -hmm. cues and everything around their safety um, helped me to kind of reframe that and see, um, see that kind of obsessiveness uh, to some degree as like productive. And just as Jody said, like, it's very normal. The the problem is when you get fixated on on those thoughts and you can't, can't let them go. But I do think that giving people the information about what's happening to the brain that make that thing so normal um, could help Mm. people to frame it in a way that is healthy and also manageable at least some some folks and and if it's not doesn't feel manageable then of course um, seek out help and it's it's something that 
yeah, can be, you can recover from. Yeah. Yeah. I often think it's, it's your brain demanding something. Often our mental health is, is your brain is demanding something. It's demanding rest is demanding something change. And so, yeah, I like this Chelsea. It's just, if we can acknowledge that there's a physical component, a biological, neurobiological component, it kind of gives us a bit more control and then we can be like, okay, so I can manage this, or I know that there's something going on there, but then I can hopefully modify it with support or what have you. So yeah, I think it's really important. Not to wait and see either, because I, I remember when I, during my third, no, it was my second pregnancy, um, all of a sudden I was just crying every single day and I didn't realize that I, I, I was overworking and it was sort of like a burnout. But I remember not telling my doctor because I just figured it's hormones, who cares, it'll pass, right? And not even telling my husband at the beginning because I was attributing it to silly hormones, I'm just crying all the time and And then there was a moment where I just broke down in my doctor's office and he's like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. I just cry all the time. And he set me up with a psychiatrist and said, like, I just want to make sure that postpartum you'll be okay as well because you have more uh, chances of postpartum depression if you're experiencing this. And I stopped working. He had told me just stop working. It was a bit much. And I was near the end of my pregnancy. And then everything shifted and changed. <laughs> and that could be just my experience. It doesn't mean that everybody will have that kind of change. But for me, it was just the fatigue and the the stress that was contributing to that. Um, but that's why it's so important to speak to somebody about it and to just put it out there and not to wait and say, well, they're just hormones. It'll be fine after because then there could be higher chances of of that postpartum. Yeah, phase. definitely. Good point. What I just realized, I know that some parents have asked me, what is the definition of the postpartum period? How long or how long after we have our child is that that period? <laughs> is this a trick question? Yeah. Choice, all of <laughs> no. the above? No. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> the only reason I just realized now, because some moms will ask me um, or, or tell me that their anxiety only came yeah. up later, yeah. eight months, 10 months later after. And they asked, like, is this still the postpartum? Is this postpartum anxiety? Is this normal anxiety or are these feelings depression, postpartum depression? How do we know? I mean, I can tell you here, I've heard stories where the physician has been like, oh, you're, you're one year postpartum. You don't need your medication anymore for your depression. And I'm like, what? what? Like, what? How does Just magically, like at midnight. Anything? So... <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the proper definition is. For me, I feel like, I mean, I'm very open to however anybody wants to define it. Really, for me personally, it's not a big deal. I mean, yeah, that's it. That's my take. But There's no definition. Yeah, good to know. Two thoughts on this one is like it, it. it's a word that doesn't need to be defined, except that we constantly are defining it, right? Like we, we're like in terms of Got how it. we're yep. measuring things like, okay, maternal mortality, for example, you know, when you start looking at the maternal deaths up to a year, you realize that there's, they're really dramatic and it has a lot to do with mental health and, and especially here in the United States. And, um, or if you look at, at rates of depression, or also you can look at, there was recently a a few years ago, a study done that looked at, uh, women who screened negative at their six week appointment, who then went on to develop postpartum wound and anxiety disorders. And it was something like 8% of the people who had previously been negative. So it's a pretty significant figure. Um, I I think w- embedded in this question is this idea that it is a distinct period that rather than a new stage of development that changes us for for good you know for the rest of our lives and um that's that's 
how that that is what it is and so how do I we love that. help help the yeah. research and the conversation catch up to that yeah that is such a good answer because now i think knowing that we could just shift the way that we're thinking about it and even for myself i had three kids under four years so was i in and out of it was i continuously in it am i still in and out you know like it's it, i think we don't have to give a pro like a, a definition to that but you've had a child and now you're in that postpartum phase and it's that development that stage of life that you're in now Although I, I'd have to say probably for policies and things like this, they like to have dates and timeframes for mm. postpartum, let's say. Mm. But I mean, once you're a parent, you're always a parent. And so this is something, yeah. I mean, when we when I think of the brain, I think we're all, it's always going to be changing now that you're a parent because you have these dependents or this different relationship, right? With your, your kids and you have to constantly learn and interact with them as you, things go. So there's that component mm. there. So I always think, you know, why aren't we appreciating the fact that parenting impacts our health and our brain more? I mean, it's not just mm -hmm. like a fun little project we do as neuroscientists to understand this, you know, how the brain changes with parenting. Oh, that's so cool. But now we're actually proving that it's changing forever. So this is a big right. deal, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to start to appreciate that um, in terms of, of, you know, science, medicine, and what have you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree entirely. And and I, I just this morning actually saw something on, on social media about how it was talking about changes in, in the postpartum period. And and it said something about the lo loss of, of gray matter and how it takes up to six months for that gray matter to be restored. And I was like, that's not, that's not quite it. No, it's not. Our brain doesn't bounce back, you know, like, and, and um, I, so I do think we have to be kind of like vigilant that the science doesn't get twisted in, in the way to like fit that narrative that there is a period and then you're back to normal. Cause don't go back. You go forward into this new role, this new part of your life. Yeah. But not to like mm -hmm. terrify listeners out there. Of course you have your old life. Parts of it or most of it will come back with the compliment of sorting out what to do with your kids sometimes. So, I mean, and other things around that, but I always think we don't transform into completely new humans, but it's a different part of us that becomes, that becomes essentially us. Um, but we still have our other parts that will come back maybe later in the postpartum, however you def define that, be developed a bit more. Um, but yeah, but it is a transition. It's a life change. Given the research that you've both done and read, um, what is what would you like new parents or expecting parents to know that will help them as they move forward in this new phase of their life? My typical answer to that is is really that to to just to remember that experience matters. That in the in the mm -hmm. sense that you're not supposed to know everything <laughs> once your baby arrives. There is no no magical flip of the switch that you know, your maternal instinct clicks on. This is a, this is a growing process. And um, so in that, try to give yourself some grace and some patience to, to, to grow and to make mistakes and, but also to, to learn from them and to grow along with your particular baby. Yeah. And I would also add on the brain note specifically, I mean, this is this whole mommy brain rebranding bit, perhaps, 
I'm going to throw in here is that I I really want us to think of our brains as mothers in particular as something incredibly amazing. I mean, it goes through a lot of these changes, like Chelsea mentioned, in order for us to learn how to keep baby alive, essentially. Of course, we don't have to be the primary caregiver. But this process has taken place in our brain so we can figure it out. And I think we have to, of course, acknowledge that memory is maybe a thing we struggle with or what have you. But let's not have mommy brain be defined by a deficit, essentially, or something we find as a deficit. Let's have it rebranded to really signify how amazing our brains are during this time. And I think that's really important not to downplay the role of the brain, essentially, in parenting. And 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 we really start, have to start to give it the credit it deserves. Yeah, I agree. And I love how we've had this conversation today about the maternal brain, but the parental brain as well. And I think we need to continue these conversations around the changes and you said like you said Chelsea like the experience and how we can shift the narrative in our society definitely yeah thank you both of you for taking the time to chat with me today Jody I know you have a, a new book out as well yeah so is there an English version coming out too I know there are French listeners and English listeners hopefully soonish but nothing uh, right now but definitely it's available in French for the, the Francophones out there good so those of you from Montreal it's available and Chelsea your book Mother Brain is available now for everyone to purchase anywhere I'm assuming yep, Amazon yep, anywhere and, and, and the they can find more info at motherbrainbook.com Thank you. And I'll, I will put the links to both your books. I will put the links to your podcast as well, uh, Jody, so that everybody could um, learn more about the postpartum brain and the maternal brain. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to take a moment to review and rate the podcast. I'll see you next time. Bye.